Psalm 23. And right then I thought, I will finish this series before he gets through Psalm 23. <clears throat> Just kid each other a little bit. All right, last week we wound up with the book of Jonah, and <coughs> Jonah saw what God had in mind, as I explained, and Jonah didn't like it. He did not trust God's judgment. He thought he had a better idea for Israel than God did. So when God gave him a commission a calling, a job to do. Noah had other ideas. He chose a different route. In fact, he ran from the calling that God had given him. And then he was swallowed up by a fish that God had prepared. And after he rolled around in there for three days, his attitude was decidedly changed. Now, when God lays something on us that he wants done... We need to take it seriously. Jonah did not. And he came to have a higher respect, a higher fear, a higher determination in his mind and commitment to do what God had said to do. After he got out of the fish, spit out on the ground, he made a beeline for Nineveh to warn them as God had told him to do. Sometimes we might question God, brethren. We question his timing. We question whether he really will fulfill his promises. But we need to bear in mind that God is a perfectionist. He is perfect in his timing. He is perfect in his acts. He is perfect in everything that he does. When he got done creating the heavens and the earth, his attitude toward what he done, had done was, it's very good. And I would say that it had a perfection to it, because it was done exactly as he planned and executed. Now, we have difficulty understanding perfection and something being done completely right. And part of that is because... As human beings, when we run across someone that we might term as a perfectionist, they are usually somewhat vain, egocentric, perhaps self-righteous, and sometimes downright anal about it. So we don't particularly like perfectionists as personalities because they have something in their personality that isn't perfect, and that is a view from their exalted plane down toward us who are less than perfect. And that creates problems in human relations. So, we cannot judge God by human beings. We judge God by what he has seen, or I mean what he has done, what we see that he has done. And we must be very, very careful. Yes, we get frustrated at times. We get impatient at times. So have people in Scripture that are written there for us. So that we might learn 
to trust God, to wait on God, because he will do things at just the exact right time. I don't think you and I, to any great degree, question the things that God has said he is going to do. The problem we deal with is we're in a hurry. We want it now. We've been trained that way in our society, and human beings have that tendency anyway, is to want it now. I want to be healed now. I want to be wealthy now. I want to be whatever that we want now. So we have trouble waiting on God. Let's go to the book of Micah now. And I want to pick up in some ways where I left off last week because I was talking about us having a calling. We're called to do a job here at the end. And some of the scriptures that we have read, Old and New Testament, are not understood by most of the church. If God opened your mind and mine to an understanding of some of these scriptures, then we are held responsible for accomplishing the things that those scriptures contain. Now, does that make sense? Does God hold someone whose mind has not seen, whose mind has not been opened, to do something they don't know about? How could they? They can't. The only ones who could possibly accomplish the things that God has shown us are the ones to whom it has been shown. So it is not a matter of being presumptuous. No, we don't want to get us, try to get a step ahead of God. We do not want to lag a step or two behind God either. We want to be close to God and seeking his guidance and help daily so that he will direct our steps, guide our paths, and lead us to the right place to do the right thing at the right time. We need to stay close to him to know how to go about it and expect him to guide us and to lead us. But make no mistake, it is not presumptuous to do what God has shown you needs to be done because no one else can do it, only those whom he has shown. He didn't open your mind just so you would have better knowledge than someone else. Now, he may have opened people's minds in other groups other than this one because he had a specific purpose for them, a specific job for them. <coughs> I'm not one to judge that. They can only do what they see, and that is all. Now, it is upon all of us to seek and to find, to try to understand what God would have done. But as he opens things, other groups may have a calling from God. 
to do a certain thing in a certain way. We cannot deny that, nor can we judge that. We can only look at our own plate and see what God has put on it, and then accomplish whatever is upon it. Remember when God said, take, eat this roll, it'll taste sweet in your mouth, but it'll be bitter to your belly? John was expected to go ahead and eat what God set before him. And God even told him, the other side's sweet, but there's some indigestion this side of what I'm going to accomplish. Now we can hang back, not wanting to be presumptuous in anything. But do you realize God has no pleasure in those who shrink back? So if it's presumptuous to try to do something that you wonder, is it your job? It's also a fearful thing to shrink back because God takes no pleasure in that. So we have to find the right balance. We have to understand. And I hope that by the end of today we have a better understanding. In Micah 7, you remember the book of Micah is the one that directs us in chapter 4 to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, even to Babylon, that our counselor is dead, our king has perished, speaking, I think, of Herbert Armstrong, and that after his death, things would come apart, and it would be time to leave the cities and go dwell in the field, even in Babylon. You can't get clear out of it because the United States is the basic end-time Babylon, even though Satan's system goes around the world. We are the focal, the center part of Babylon. So, having that knowledge, you did what you should have done. You moved out here in a waste howling wilderness in the deserts, the mountains, the wilderness, as God describes where he will take his people to help prepare a place for them to come when he gathers them. He gave us that knowledge ahead of time, and we acted on it. So let's give you a gold star for that. Now what? Reading on in Micah 7, I want to go down to uh, verse 13. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, for the fruit of their doings. Notice he doesn't single out just the politicians. Uh, we can blame all our problems on politicians. But it is the sins of our people, of us, that is going to cause this land to become desolate. It isn't just the politicians or the great sports figures or whatever who do wrong. They are just a reflection of the society they grew up in. They are doing what the rest of America is doing. We can condemn them, but we need to think about our own actions. So it is the people as a whole that is the problem. So verse 14, he says, Feed your people with your rod, the flock of your heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. So God says he wants his people drawn out into the wilderness 
to dwell solitarily in the wood, in the wilderness. And we have around here the woods up high. We have the wilderness. We have the desert. We have all the things that all these scriptures talk about in this part of the United States. According to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show to him marvelous things. So, as we were talking about Purim in the announcement section, God's people are going to come under great duress, be hated of all peoples, all nations, and God will have to deliver. We quote Jeremiah 23 fairly often. I mixed that up a a time or two. I got it confused with with Jeremiah 31, and I think quoted it that way a few times. So if you looked it up, uh, that was my mistake. It should have been Jeremiah 23 where he says that the deliverance will make us forget the Red Sea in Egypt. But he recounts it here. The things are going to be just as spectacular as the Red Sea opening and God's people going through and then the Egyptians being drowned. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. God is going to give us might. He says in Micah 4, after he says, Come out, I'll deliver you in the wilderness. He will make us like a sharp new threshing instrument. says the same thing in Isaiah 41, I believe it is. Threshing means a turbulent, violent way of harvesting grain. If you've seen a thresher go through a field, it tears things up. And God is going to give his people that kind of power. They'll see our might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the eternal our God, and shall fear because of you. We must deal with our fears and come to fear God, and be in such a mood and attitude and state of mind that he can then give us might and power and strength so that the world is going to fear before us. God will turn the fear around. Can you imagine? This world, its leaders, its military might, fearing God's people. We're small, we're weak, we're inept, we're nothing, we're base, we're even scattered and divided and not united. So of ourselves, we have no strength, we have no power. The power will come from Almighty God. Let's go to Zephaniah. Here, chapter 3. You'll remember Zephaniah, uh, chapter 1, talks about the financial crash that is going to come on this country and ultimately on the world. And we are leaning further and further outward like a wall in that fashion now. And one of these days it's going to completely crash. There are people who talk about when things get better. No, they're not going to. Maybe this 
stimulus and all that has had a slight temporary rallying of some things, so it looks a little better to them, and boy, do they play that up. But no, uh, the seeds have been sown and the crop of failure is growing. It's only a matter of time until that crash occurs. And he tells us to gather ourselves and to get away from it, to unite until the fierce anger of God's wrath passes over. Then it talks down here in chapter 3, just a brief summary there. Let's pick it up in verse... Uh, where do I want? Woe to her, let's get verse 1. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. Uh, she obeyed not the voice, she received not correction, she trusted not in the Lord, she did not, uh, did not, drew not near to her God. So our country, our nation around us, will not do that. Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves, they gnaw, not the bones, till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons, her priests have polluted the sanctuary. So all through our society and its culture, there is rot. All the leaderships of all the areas. They have done violence to the law thrown away the law of God, thrown away even the constitution of the nation, which is based on the law of God. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. God is in the middle of this. He knows what's going on. He is not out of control. He will not do iniquity. Every morning does he bring his judgment to light. He fails not, but the unjust knows no shame. Remember Lamentations where it says he gives us a new start every morning? Well, God is saying essentially the same thing here. Every morning he starts a new judgment. He gives opportunity and space to repent, to start over. God does not care what you have been, brethren. He cares what you are and what you are going to become. He can forgive past sins. We do not have to carry them around, belabor ourselves over them, and become discouraged and quit because of them. Even with this nation, God knows what's going on. If any morning the people of this nation would wake up drop on their knees and cry out to Almighty God because of their sins, not somebody else's, their own, God would forgive. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passes by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. He just, he's just going to cut it off. Heavy destruction. Other places show he will save a remnant. Verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. It, when he destroys, cuts off this nation, he said, surely that would teach you to fear me. You will receive 
instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever, I punished them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Going down to verse 12. He's going to take it all apart. He says, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, or a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. So this nation will be destroyed, and out of that the people will not learn to fear God. But he will save out a very small group of people who are meek, who are humble, who are willing to be taught, who are willing to take instruction, who are willing to do what he wants done for his own purposes, and they will receive salvation out of it. Verse 13, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. None shall make them afraid. Now we have talked in sermons for years here, and it goes back in the church for decades about the coming tribulation and how fearful things are going to be. I've read you scriptures about people eating their own babies and that kind of thing. And it's truly horrible to consider. It can make you nauseated to your stomach. Now, that is coming, and we read those scriptures, and we should fear before God and hope we can be delivered out of it. Now, I want to take that a step further today. I started there last week. But I want us to understand, those of you who have been called here, who understand what needs to be done here in the end time, have not been called to be martyred. You have not been called to die. You have been called to live and set an example for the world as a city on a hill that cannot be hid. Those who go into the tribulation are the ones who are going to be martyred for the most part. God is calling out a group, and he's going to raise the number to approximately 10% of what the church wants. And they are going to be called to do a special job for God and they will be protected. <coughs> God has given you and me, and he will give it to others, knowledge of what must be done. And that is increasing the further forward we go as time passes. I understand far more now about what we need to do than I did 14 years ago when these scriptures started to become clear. Far more. In fact, some of the sermons from 10, 11, 12 years ago are way out of date. Some from a year or two or three ago are way out of date because we've learned more. So rest assured that if God opened your mind to understand these scriptures we're reading that most people in the church do not yet understand, He did not have in mind to have you martyred somewhere down the line like Stephen was 
or as Christ told the disciples, they would be. He has told the bulk of the church they will go into tribulation, 90%, roughly, because of lackadaisical, Laodicean, Laodicean, lukewarm attitudes. Now, that does not mean that we have not had those attitudes as well. But we have been called to what? To turn to God with our whole hearts. We've been called to repent. And we have been given knowledge of what God wants done because He has put us here to start the process, and he's going to add a lot of people to it to get his work done. If you understand this, you have been called to do it. And therefore, you have been called to live, to escape the tribulation that is coming. What an incredible blessing that is to consider. If we will repent, and if we will do what God says needs to be done, we will be saved out of it. That's the beauty of understanding what you understand and knowing ahead of time what needs to be done. There is a way out, and God expects you. He's one in this room. He expects you to be saved out of the trouble that is to come. Because he expects you to hear, to answer, to follow these scriptures. That is his attitude and his mind toward us here. Now, he has not turned and blessed us according to the way the scriptures read yet. Now, we have blessings, I'm told. Blessings, too many to count, really, already but not the kind that we're looking to at some point that are so wonderful back in Isaiah and other places. Those will come when the time arises that an example and a light to the rest of the world is ready to start. But there's been some prep work to do ahead of time, and there has been some repentance to do in our lives, in our minds and hearts, some changing, some preparation, so that we are prepared to do the job God is preparing to do. Now there's one of the reasons God called us out ahead of time to come out and prepare a place and begin to get things going, while at the same time He's preparing our hearts, minds, and attitudes to be usable for His purposes. Were we usable 10, 20, 30 years ago to be the elect, chosen ones of God for this particular purpose? No. Do we still have growth to do? Yes. Thankfully, we may have a little time left to get there. Isn't it strange that we know we're not ready, and yet at the same time we want it to happen? because we just get frustrated. But it'll happen in due course, and we need to be using this time to prepare ourselves to be true servants of God. 
That's why God would have us go back and examine the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and our fathers of the past. Is so that we might come to be like them. You and I are supposed to be like Noah. We're supposed to be like Enoch and David and the leaders of the past. That's why they're in here. We're supposed to become like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. God wants us to be of the same sort, of the same character, of the same mind and attitude that they were. And then he'll throw in a Jonah to show us that's not the way to go. Don't rebel against what I tell you to do. If I've showed you what to do, I expect you to do it. Get her done. Get on it. And he says that the remnant, those humble, meek ones that he sets aside, will not do iniquity, nor lie, or be deceitful, but they'll dwell in peace, safely lie down. So it's character, isn't it? Isn't this prophecy right here about our character, about us and our mind and attitude being meek, humble, and not deceitful or lying? God can't use liars and thieves and deceitful people, fraudulent people, to do his work. Hypocrites, lukewarm, he can't use that. Now, he's called us out and given us the knowledge, so he expects us to become that. He fully expects it. And he's willing to help us to overcome, change, and have the right kind of character so we can be of use to him. Verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And we are one of those daughters of Jerusalem. I hope we are a virtuous one, Proverbs 31. We're one of the daughters that came out of Mother Worldwide. Now, if we're meek and humble we correct our character, we correct our approach, then we have something to sing and rejoice over. And the fact that God has chosen us by giving us the information to do what he wants done. The Eternal has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. Now remember what we read a little earlier about how in Micah there, about how God sits in the middle and is aware of and has a new judgment every morning. This whole nation is going to be destroyed, and they're not going to turn to God. But he tells us, if we repent and do what we're supposed to do and have the right attitude, he is going to remove the judgment of our sins. He's going to forgive us. The King of Israel, even the Eternal, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil anymore. Now, we're going to go through a certain amount of evil, but then it's going to change, and we won't see any more evil. The tribulation is going to rage around us as we finish the work that God has called us to do, but we'll see no more evil once this turns around. There's a great deal to be encouraged about here. Now, this is 
this book and this end chapter in Zephaniah is preparatory to some instruction God gives us here at the end. So he's getting, laying out here what the attitude needs to be and what he's going to do for us, how he'll bless us if we'll do the things that he has projected for us to do. Now, any one individual can turn away, as Jonah did, but he will have to deal with God at some point. Verse 16, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, to the church, Fear you not, and to Zion let not your hands be slack. So, we are going to be operating in a time that would cause a great deal of fear in which our nation is falling apart around us and will ultimately be taken captive and its people go into slavery and into tribulation along with <coughs> most of the church. But to some, he has a job to do that calls for life, happiness, and protection and him dwelling in the midst of us. We'll see that again here in a few minutes how he is going to dwell in the midst of us. It will truly be Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we're looking forward to shortly. So it'll come in a time of great fear, and he tells us, don't fear. And at the same time, get to work. Don't let your hands be slack. There is work to do. The eternal your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. God is going to sing in joy over us because we have repented or will have repented and will be of use to him, will cheer him greatly. What does God have to be cheerful about? when he looks down at this earth, his footstool. Virtually everyone on this earth is going his own way, doing his own thing, and ignoring God and doesn't even know who he is. Don't you think that the few who humble themselves before Almighty God, he is going to take great pleasure and joy in? What if you had a dozen kids, and eleven of them were snotty, nasty, rebellious little jerks, and you had one that was loving and respectful and kind and sweet, wouldn't you joy in that one, especially with the other running around yelling and screaming and destroying things? Just imagine God looking down and how few there are out of six and a half billion people on this earth who have the Spirit of God and the light of God in their lives and who are willing to obey. And even with them, the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. But we're trying and we're calling out and we're working at it. And at one point, God is just going to I forgive them. Their, their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. I will go down. I will dwell with them. I will sing over them. 
and I will bless them in such a way that the world cannot believe. And I will make them mighty and strong, and they will thresh the nations. We've been called to do that. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of you, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. We're going the opposite direction of the rest of the world, and there's a reproach there. And it becomes burdensome. It becomes heavy. Let's understand, that is a true condition. It is not easy when the whole world is marching to death, and we take the narrow, hard, difficult road to life. It is a burden. God recognizes that. He will take care of that. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that halts, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. We've been put to shame with our relatives. Some of them will hardly speak to us. They don't want anything to do with us. We're too odd. We're too weird. And we'll be treated the same way of the nation shortly as well, not just our relatives and former friends. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make them Make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Eternal. Remember how Daniel and the boys were made a praise of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, really. Now, they didn't wind up repenting and worshiping the true God, but they were so amazed that those men would go against what they themselves, the kings, had even decreed out of loyalty to their God. It wasn't just peer pressure. This was pressure from the leader of the kingdom who had life and death in his hands. And they stood against it. And when it was all said and done and God delivered them, they were held in high regard and put over or promoted in the realm, wherever they were, whether it was in Esther's day or Daniel's or who's ever. God says he's going to do the same thing with us. So let's understand. Now what comes after these encouraging words in the end of Zephaniah? The time of the crash of the nations, God is going to begin to work with the people who have gathered themselves together, become meek and humble and obedient, and he will rejoice over them and bless them. Then he gives them a calling, a job to do. And that job commences in the book of Haggai. Now, we've been here before, but I want to review a bit of this so that we get clearly in our mind that we're not just out here to save ourselves. We're here to do a magnificent, powerful, wonderful job for Almighty God. Now that is not to pat us on the back and make us feel righteous. That is to help us grasp 
the magnitude of what God needs done and how he wants it done, and he's always worked through human instruments. And called the mighty. Christ's own twelve, called tax collectors and fishermen, just average people. Or you might say below average people. To train them to do something spectacular for him. And they did. The New Testament is a result of that. Now, the word came to Haggai and to Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are, who are, in the end time, the two witnesses. That's very clear between Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4, that they are the two candlesticks that are spoken of there. So this is a very end-time prophecy of the church doing the work of God at the end. We've always looked at those who would be the witnesses as being at the end and being a witness against the world. We did not understand, did not grasp, that God was going to call a 10% remnant of his people and at some point send that leadership to them and have them do an end-time work that we're about to read about. It was just a three-and-a-half-year witness against the world is all we understood and grasped. But there's far more to the story than that. And if you understand it, you're called to be part of it. I am not here to talk about who those two might be. That remains to be seen and shown by God Almighty. But if he is opening our minds to understand it, then he wants us to be a part of it. And I think a part of it that he wants us to be right now is, as I've said before, a prep crew, uh, those who come out ahead of time to prepare a place and get things ready so that God can call that remnant together and supply the leadership as he sees fit. So we're not saying that any of us are that. We're saying that we have the knowledge and therefore God expects us to do something. And the first thing he told us to do was leave the city and go dwell in the field. And some of you have done that. Now what do we do next? He's opened our mind to understand more and more as time has gone on. But let's notice this. Verse 2, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Eternal's house should be built. Now, I've made this point, and I want to emphasize it. What this is talking about, the house that should be built, the temple of God, the people will say it's not the time for that. Now this is speaking of people in the church. Because Joshua and Zerubbabel are leaders of the church at the end. <clears throat> and they are told that the people say this isn't the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, is there anyone in the church of God, anywhere, 
who would not say that the temple of God should be built in our lives because we have been told by Paul in Corinthians and Ephesians and other places, we are the temple of God. So the whole church agrees that the temple spiritually needs to be built in the hearts and minds of God's people. So we're faced here with a temple that the people would say does not need to be built. So this cannot be speaking of the spiritual temple of our bodies and minds, can it? Because everybody would agree to that. So this must be then talking about something else that they would say it isn't time to do that. Could it mean it's a physical temple? Now, you can go through the churches of God, wherever they may be around this earth, and you could poll those people and ask them, is the time here or almost here to build a physical temple? To have the church build a physical temple? Oh, no! The Jews may do that over in Jerusalem, but it's not time for us to build a temple. I think you'd get almost 100% on that. There might be some little groups here and there where they'd understand that maybe we need to build a physical temple at the end. But almost invariably they'd say, oh, that's talking of the spiritual temple that has to be built. If Then came the word of the eternal by Haggai the prophet, say. Now, here, here's, this is setting the stage, see. Haggai addresses the leadership and says, God says the people will say it isn't time to build the Lord's house. That's what the people will say. Bottom line. So then came the word. Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your fine homes and this house lie waste? Is it time to be part of the American dream and live in McMansions? Or is it time to leave this culture and society and go do something God wants done? His house. We've been working on building the spiritual temple in this end-time church for over 70 years. This is something different. Now therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Or he says, think about your life. Okay? Does this fit now? Our society, our situation today. Because this is addressing the two witnesses and the people in the church of God. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Is that the way life in America has become? Is it getting worse? Is it even the way our spiritual lives have gone? What time we work at it and it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere, spinning our wheels. So both on a physical and a spiritual level, 
we're in trouble. As a church, I don't mean just this group, but the church as a whole. The bigger ones have their goals and purposes, things they want to accomplish. Preaching the gospel around the world is a witness so that the end can come, and it's not their job, and it's not working too well for them. As Dr. Phil often says, how's it working for you? Good question. Not working too well. Well, is that what God wants done? Might ought to rethink it. Maybe it isn't the time for that. Maybe that is the job of the two witnesses. It certainly wasn't Herbert Armstrong's job. He did everything he did and died and the world didn't come to an end. We're still here. He wasn't Elijah. He was sent to call a people. A new work is going to be raised up, a new temple, spiritual temple, and I submit to you a physical as well to finish the work of God. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, verse 7, Consider your ways, go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. So he's speaking to the church, and we already have a church. He's talking here about the church going and doing something else. And it must be a physical temple, as we have already stated. Verse 9, you looked for much and it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Isn't that what's happening to the churches and their work that they're trying to do today? Why, says the eternal of hosts, because of my house that is waste and you run every man to his own house. The focus is on our lives and our wealth and our houses and our things and materiality, even in the church. And it became that way in Worldwide, where they were more interested in swimming pools and fine big homes than they were in really doing the work of God. So therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew and the earth is, is uh, starved from, or stayed, I've got a mark over that, stayed from our fruit. Amos talks about a famine of the word, famine of the truth. Not much direction, not knowing where to go, what to do. So we've had a spiritual famine, and now we are beginning to see the beginnings of a physical famine in the nation. The things we've been talking about and preaching about these last 14 years are now beginning to come to pass, not just on the church, but on the nation, as we have been saying. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Eternal their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as, their, as the Eternal their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Eternal. So God is calling out a people here at the end, a remnant, who will hear these words of Haggai and will fear God and get to work. They are called to do a job. Then, Hag uh, then spoke Haggai the Eternal's messenger and the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Eternal. I am with you, God with you, Emmanuel. That is the Christ we're looking to now, is the one who will come and be with us, as he says, and dwell with us, with us as Zephaniah put it, and be with us, as Haggai puts it, Christ is coming to take a direct hand in the job that has to be done. 
Whether we will see him visibly is neither here nor there. He will be in the midst of us. And he will remove our sins so that he can stand to be among us. And our righteousness will be his righteousness, as Isaiah 54 says. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message to the people, I'm with you. And the Eternal stirred up the spirit of the two and the people, uh, and they came and did work in the house of the Eternal of hosts, their God. So it's going to happen. Temple has to be built. Daniel 9, 25, 26 says that Jerusalem has to be built, and it will be built in troublous times. Times of tumult, times of war and lack of peace. But God says that he will take care of it, he will be among us, and protect us so that we can get his work done. So, there will be war and terror on every side. But God says, fear not, I will take care of you. Isn't that beautiful? I have a job I want done. I'm going to see that it gets done. I'm going to use you to do it. And I will protect you while you do it, even though there are terrible times. Just to consider these things, I personally am very, very encouraged. We can read this and see that there is no reason to fear. If we will fear God and obey Him and set our hand to do what He wants done, we have nothing to fear even though over 90% of the world's population will die in the next few years. We have not been called to be martyred. Well, the two witnesses will be, but the rest will not. They will be there as a light on a hill and be protected. What a beautiful thing. Are we thankful that God has opened our minds to these things? It will happen in a very short time. He says in chapter 2, in the beginning, I'll not read it all, that the latter temple will eclipse by far the former temple under Herbert Armstrong, but that this new temple will be far greater. Now, it is a spiritual temple, a people, who are spiritually ahead of what we were before, but they will also, that spiritual temple, that people, build a physical temple, I am now quite sure. That's the one that people say doesn't need to be built. They will all go about whatever they're doing, wherever they are on this earth, trying to build a spiritual temple. And they would not deny that. <clears throat> but they will almost universally deny a physical temple. And it will be toward the end of this era, of this age of the church. <clears throat> so that there are only old men who recognize worldwide at its greatest spiritual strength who can compare the two. So it is an end time prophecy of the two works that were to be done here at the end. The calling work and then those chosen to finish the work. A whole new work. So, he says, it will happen. Then he says in verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, says the Eternal. Remember he tells him in Zechariah 4, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. 
So don't fear. Be strong because God will see that this gets done. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Eternal, and work, for I am with you. Emmanuel, says the Eternal of hosts. I'll be right there. So all of us are to be strong and be ready to go to work. Let not your hands be slack. See, Zephaniah set the stage for what Haggai would say. God put the story together, chapter by chapter, for us. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. So he's going to shake the world society to the ground, and he will fill his people and the temple with his glory. It'll be built with a gate to the east, and he will come in, and his glory will fill it. He didn't do that in Herod's temple. He's going to do it in this end-time temple that Ezekiel describes that no one has ever built. No temple in the past has ever met the dimensions or fit the geography of where this last one is going to go. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace while the rest of the world is at war. Fearful times are coming, but we have opportunity to be doing a work of God under his protection. Uh, I don't think I'll read all the rest of this, uh, skipping on, but verse 21, it does say, or introduces that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, overthrow the kingdoms and everything. Uh, so it is the end time shaking that is being spoken of here. So this is up to date. This is, this is a now prophecy. In fact, it's getting to the place it, is, it isn't so much prophecy as it is starting to be enacted. Now, I disagree with the idea that we should go about life trying to fulfill prophecy, as some might say. That is not the point. The point is, if God opens your mind to understand something, then he holds you responsible to do it. So you're not trying to fulfill prophecy in your mind, your attitude, your approach. You're trying to obey God. And if that turns out to fulfill a prophecy, well and good. But your approach and your attitude is not to be a prophet or to be fulfilling prophecy, for vanity or ego or to show other people that, hey, we're special. <coughs> that is a wrong approach. And when someone would come up with that, if that is your attitude, that would be a valid criticism. But if your attitude is, I want to be meek and humble and obey God and have high character and do what God opens my mind to understand, then you're not trying to, quote, 
fulfill prophecy, unquote. You're simply trying to obey and follow Scripture. And as I said, if that happens to wind up fulfilling a prophecy, wonderful. But that wasn't your goal and your purpose. I'm sure you can see the difference and the approach. And we're not going to do anything <clears throat> unless God is with us and provides whereby to do it, because we cannot do it by our strength or our might. And in fact, as I look at what we have done and look at what needs to be done, I personally see no way right now to do it. It will have to be of God. He will have to open a way. Now let's examine a bit what he wants. Now, what does this have to do with the Sermon on Fear? <coughs> Everything in that, when God wants something done, he wants us to understand what is and is not to be feared. So that we are not encumbered by our emotion and can't do anything. We have to understand and trust in him and have faith that if we do what he says needs to be done, he will take care of us. This is a very fundamental and very important thing that we must comprehend. Now, you might think I'm going on and on, but do you begin to see this thing coming together in such a way that all the background we've laid in this what's becoming a long series, that there's a purpose to that, that... There is something just ahead of us that we need to be fortified and strengthened to do. You eat breakfast before you go to work usually because you know you're going to need strength and energy to do whatever you have to do that day. Now God wants us to eat of his word and imbibe of it deeply so that we have strength and energy from him to do what needs to be done. It's that simple. <clears throat> but it's hard for us to grasp. Now notice, he opens the book of Zechariah, and Zechariah started writing right in the middle of when Haggai was writing. So Zechariah comes out of Haggai, if you will. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken to me, says the eternal. They were kind of like Jonah and others and like the world around us. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? No. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? In other words, what those prophets told them, didn't it happen? Yes, it did. Is it going to happen again? Yes, it is. Not just will, but it's already coming. It started. Just not finished yet. Anyway, <clears throat> he goes down and he says he's going to return to Jerusalem with mercies in verse 16. It says, when are you going to begin to deliver just above that? And, and God says, that's all right. I was a little displeased. They helped forward the affliction. He was sore displeased with some of those in the church who stood up against the truth. But I return to Jerusalem with mercies, he says in verse 16. And my, and my house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Speaking not just of, of spiritual, but of physical Jerusalem. 
Now, Daniel says the walls of Jerusalem have to be built in the end times. Now, that Jerusalem in the Middle East has walls. They don't need to be built. The, the original true Jerusalem, which I think we have, most of us come to understand, is not far from where we are today. And it must be rebuilt. The temple must be built there. A line yet will be stretched upon it. You lay out a line to lay the foundations to show where it will be, to position it properly. Let's go to chapter 2. <clears throat> it talks about the church being destroyed, spiritual, the spiritual temple, how it has to be brought back together to do a job. Verse two, or chapter 2, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, I, where do you go? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, and to see what is the breadth and what is the length. And verse 4, he said, and said to him, this angel, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. So, Jerusalem has to begun to be built ahead of time by people who are part of spiritual Jerusalem, read Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But it is physical because it has men and cattle, and it is unwalled villages, not one spot. So, God is going to begin to draw together his remnant spiritual Jerusalem to start physical villages with men and cattle, in other words, an agrarian agricultural society. And it's not just spiritual. Cattle, physical, no walls. God says he will be a wall of fire around it and a glory in the midst of her. He'll come, be there, protect her. He says, flee from the land of the north, Babylon. Deliver yourself, O Zion, verse 7, who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. It says in Micah 4, get away from the cities, go dwell in the fields, and there you will be delivered. And he says, he will protect us. He touches you, touches the apple of his eye, into verse 8. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, like the last few verses of the book of Zephaniah. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. Now this is talking about the time the two witnesses begin to work with the church. The remnant comes together. They dwell in villages with cattle. If you go over to Zechariah 4, it talks about Joshua and his job ahead of that. And it says down in verse 15, They that are far off shall come and build in the temple, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal. Oh, I'm in chapter 6. It says about the same thing, but what I wanted was verse 10 of chapter 3. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So... That is what is just ahead of us. Villages without walls, with cattle, with vine and fig tree, 
we're getting back to the agricultural type of life that God intended man to have from the beginning. The optimal way for humans to live is in that kind of setting, like the Garden of Eden. And he says he's going to bring that back in Isaiah 51 and other places. So, you understand, and you have been called here to start a beachhead, to start a place, to prepare not just one, but several villages, I would say likely seven, I don't know that, but several scriptures seem to indicate it could be seven, planted in the wilderness, Isaiah 41, the trees, and other places. <clears throat> now we've established one and barely gotten it here, haven't we? It's more or less done. Now, I thought some time back, I knew of lands that were being offered where those villages might be built, and that may yet come to pass, I don't know. But we don't have the money to go buy lands to build villages. We don't have the, land, the money to develop it. We don't have that capacity, do we? I don't know how we go about it. Do you? We got this one built with help, I think, from God. I think he helped us find the place and helped us with the terms that we were able to, uh, to uh, purchase it and to develop it. Now what's next? I don't know how he's going to go about it. I know that it has to be done. And I know that you are the ones who understand that it has to be done because you are among the very few on this earth who even begin to understand Haggai and Zechariah. So if God opened our minds to understand, he expected us to do. And in fact, we have begun to do by the very fact that we've done what we've done. Now it has been my experience over the last 14 years in the church, but particularly the last 14 when I came to begin, began to come to understand some of these things, that there would be a leap in understanding, there would be a lag in how do you do that and where do you do it, and then you would begin to understand where, but then you didn't know how to go about it. <clears throat> and you kept pushing. And some of us realized we needed to come out of the cities and come out here. So what did we do? We moved to Kimab and St. George and around this area, knowing that this area fit the description of the things we've been reading and understanding. But we sat for quite a while saying, what do we do? And we looked around for land here and there. Didn't know what to do. Couldn't afford much. And then this dropped in our lap. And once it did, we began to understand why it is where it is. And I don't have time to go into all that at the moment. <clears throat> but now we got this, we developed it, then we learned about the possibility of a Jerusalem that the world does not know, that has been desolate for many generations in the home of jackals and lizards just like Jeremiah 9 and Isaiah and other places say it would be. It doesn't have any walls. No man goes there. That's never been true of that Jerusalem over there. 
But in time, after we got here and began to develop this, God showed us that. Now, I don't know how to get there. Let Jerusalem come to mind, but I don't know how to control the site and do what needs to be done there. Nor do I know where, at this point, God wants the villages. I don't know exactly when he's going to call that remnant together, but I think it's fairly soon. So there are still frustrations. We have a leap forward in knowledge and understanding, but then there is a delay before God shows how and where to do it. And we, in the meantime, have our patience tested, we have our resolve and our commitment tested, we have our obedience and character tested, to see if we will continue to follow and do what God says needs to be done. Because if we are to do the incredible things he says the remnant at the end will do, and we're to be a part of that, then we have to be prepared to do it. Now, he tried and tested all the men of old. He put them through quite a bit to see what they were made of and to help them turn to him. That is part of the process. It's a frustrating process. It can be a discouraging process. It can be a long process. But we're getting close to the end of it. And I hope we're coming up to scratch and ready to do what God wants done. Now, I've got a few minutes left. I want to go to... Uh, well, let's see, let's go to Zechariah 8, <clears throat> verse 13. Therefore it is, God speaking of his great wrath that is coming, therefore it is come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, says the Eternal of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not, that the land was desolate. So great fear and great wrath is coming. There's no doubt of that. Uh, where did, what did I want here? I wanted... Uh... Oh, that's why I'm confused. <clears throat> I turned to the wrong place. I didn't say what I thought I would be saying. How do we expound the wrong thing? Zechariah 8. <clears throat> I'll turn the page. It shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be on. So, he tells us what needs to be done, and then he tells us the things he told us before. To let our hands be strong. That we have a work to do. And let me reiterate, if you understand these things, then God is opening your mind, and you are the one who he expects to do something about it, otherwise he would not open your mind to it. So it is a calling as much as Jonah had a calling. And we dare not shrink back, we dare not fear it, we must prepare ourselves work to accomplish it. And not fear, but be strong. Let's pick up a couple more in Malachi to end this today. <clears throat> and we'll be done with the Old Testament. 
and our plan to get through the New Testament with some uh, important verses next time and be done with this and move some other things. So that's my intent. We'll see how it works out. Uh, Malachi 2. And now, O you priests, this commandment is for you. So he's talking to the ministry here in particular at the end of the end-time church. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Eternal of hosts. Some are giving glory to Herbert Armstrong. Some are giving glory to this, to that, or to themselves. But are they really giving glory to God? I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. God has scattered us, divided us. He wanted our hearts to turn, and many have not laid it to heart. So we come down to Malachi, the last chapter of these minor prophets, which tell the story of the end-time church and of the end-time nations as well. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it, and you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant might be with Levi, says the Eternal of hosts. Spiritual Levi, those who will turn and serve God. <clears throat> my covenant was with him of life and peace. Now, haven't we read prophecies just now about the remnant at the end time, and if we would obey him, he would give us life and peace, not death and destruction? And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. We're not to fear the world around us. We're to fear God and stand in awe of him, and be strong and courageous and ready to do his work. Make no mistake, we were called to do the work of God if we understand what that work has to be done. If he'd wanted somebody else to do it, he would have called them instead of you. Okay? Chapter 4. Oh, wait a minute. End of chapter 3 first. Uh, verse 5. Chapter... Yeah, chapter 3, verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment. <clears throat> I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages and the widow and the fatherless and the turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, says the Eternal. We have to fear him and that fear should create obedience in us so that we live in a right way. So it's all about character and setting a right example and being what we ought to be so that God can use us, so that we are usable. Go down to... Uh, 3, verse 16. All right? We've had a lot of background here. Drum roll. Here comes a very important statement God makes after what we have been reading. Verse 16. Then <clears throat> they that feared the Eternal spoke often one to another, and the Eternal hearkened and heard it, and the book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the eternal and that thought upon his name. The end result of all these things we have been reading and all these different passages is that then those that heard, 
those that paid attention, those that turned to God and feared him, thought upon his name, he will take special note of them. Verse 17, And they shall be mine, says the Eternal of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, the crowns, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. Didn't I tell you you're here to live, not to die? If you will hear these scriptures and turn to God and fear him and not fear the world and be strong to do the work that is ahead, and the spiritual work is character. The physical work, as I see it at this point, is going to be to develop villages for God's remnant to live in, to build a physical temple, and then to build Jerusalem, and then create a witness against the world. That's going to take some time. But those things have to be done. And if you will hear and fear and answer the calling that God has given you by laying these things out, then you will be in his kingdom and you will have a crown set up on your head in the time that he makes up his jewels. Incredible promise for those who will fear God instead of man. For behold, the day comes, chapter 4, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, but it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up in peace as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts.